man. Good morning, New City. Really? <laughs> Good morning, New City. Great to see all of you. I know it's cold. Great to see all of you here today. We're going to continue in our series, Experiencing God, um, you know, how to know and do God's will in your life. And we're going to engage in a passage today from John, the third chapter. It's actually a conversation between a man named Nicodemus and Jesus. And instead of me reading it to you today, I thought maybe we could just try to experience it and what it may have been like. And so you can go ahead and have a seat. And I want to show you this conversation from John chapter 3. And this is from The Chosen, uh, the rendering of this conversation that happens between a man named Nicodemus and Jesus. And maybe it looks something like this. Let's watch it together. No one can do these signs you do without having God in him. Only someone who has come from God. And how is that belief going over in the synagogue? (laughs) (laughs) Which is why we are here at this hour. What else? What have you come here to show us? A kingdom. That is what our rulers are worried about. No, not that kind. Then what? A sort of kingdom that a person cannot see unless he is born again. Born again? Yes. You mean like a new creature? A conversion from Gentile to Jewish? No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Then what is born again? I hope you don't mean return to the womb, because that would be a problem for me. My mother, may she rest in peace, is dead. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That part of you, that, is what must be reborn to new life. How can these things be? Ah, a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. I'm trying, Rabbi. I know. I know. Do you hear this? What? Listen. What do you hear? The wind. How do you know it's the wind? Because I can feel it. I hear its sound. Do you know where it comes from? No. Do you know where it's going? No. That's what it is to be born again of the Spirit. The Spirit may work in a way that is a mystery to you. And while you cannot see the Spirit, you can recognize His effect. Mind is consumed with thoughts of what a stir these words would cause among the teachers of the law. Yes, and I do not expect otherwise. I speak of what I know and have seen, and it has not been received by the religious leaders. It is hard to receive. So if I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how can I tell you heavenly things? I believe your words. 
I just fear you may not have a chance to speak many more of them before you are silenced. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles? Yes. But even more than that. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes. They wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents and they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. Then from what? From sin. From spiritual death. God loves the world in this way. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. But have eternal life. So this has nothing to do with Rome. It's all about... Sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, Nicodemus. He sent him to save it through him. It's as simple as Moses' serpent on the pole. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Have you ever heard anything like this before? So our, our family, and maybe yours too, have so enjoyed The Chosen and bringing the scriptures to life and imagining what these words that we read were like in real time with real people in real places because that's what they were, real conversations between real people that were trying to understand God and experience God in the same ways that we are today. And in our series, our conversation together about experiencing God, we started with a foundational verse. And, and if you're taking a few notes, I would maybe just encourage you to to write it down again. John chapter 17, verse three, Jesus is praying for us. And he says, this is eternal life. In other words, this is true life. This is what it means to experience the life that God designed and made you and purposed you for. And he says that, that they know the one true God. This is true life, eternal life, that you would know God. And the word know there, just as a reminder in the Hebrew, means to experience to engage, to relate to, to journey with, to be with. And so it wasn't just about knowing facts about God. It was about knowing God in a relationship, a real way, an experience with God. And that's what we're after. That's what we're talking about. And how God makes himself known in that way and pursues this kind of relationship with you. And last week in our series, we introduced the first of what will be seven realities of how we can better know God and experience God, relate to God, journey with God in this type of way that brings real and true and meaningful life. And I know that for each of you that are here, for those of you who are watching online, that's what you're after. That's what you wanna know. Who is God and how can I truly experience him and understand who I am in light of that? And so the realities are built off of how God has made himself known to us, how he has revealed himself to us through creation, through his people, 
but mostly through his word, through the stories of people just like us that we just watched together, that we're relating to God and pursuing the same things that you are to know God and know his purpose and meaning of life. And so all throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, they're full of stories because the Bible is a story. It's a story of God relating to us and how we're meant to relate to him. And so we can look at these stories and begin to discern the realities of how God has worked throughout time. And we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, meaning that he's eternal and unchangeable. And so we can look at how he's worked in the past and we can discern ways that he wants to continue to work. Remember, we talked last week when we wanna know what God is saying, we have to go back to what? What God has said. For those of you in your life right now, you're at a crossroads and you want to know what God is saying, I want to encourage you to go back to what he said, how he's already made himself known. And I want to encourage you that you're here today to, to hear that and to come back to what God has said. When you want to know what God is doing, you have to go back to what God has done. And so that's what we're doing. We're looking at what has God said? What has he done? How has he made himself known? to people all throughout time who were seeking the same things that we are and mostly to experience God in a real way that changes us in real time. And so we introduced the very first reality last week, which is that God is always at work around us. God is always at work around us. And if God is always at work around us, then God is always about inviting you to join him in that work. Now, this is a big one. And it's why it's first. It's the foundational reality of how we come to experience God in a true and meaningful way. That God is always at work around us. And he's inviting you to join him and participate in that said work. And this is a, 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 um, a change from how many of us have learned or have in reality played out our relationship with God, which is I invite God to join me and what I'm about. So I'm on a journey, I'm in a career path, I'm in a relationship, I'm pursuing my goals in life, and I'm inviting Jesus to come and join me in those things, to bless my journey, and that's what I'm after. And for some of you in your relationship with God, that's how it's all been oriented, is trying to get God to join you in your mission and your journey. And what we learned last week is foundational because we see the reality of the scriptures of how God has chosen to make himself known to us and what we hold today, that it's actually God that is inviting you to join him. And everything changes when you understand that God's always at work around you and he's inviting you to join him in his mission. And this is the battle and the struggle, if you will, that many of us are right in the middle of, is we're inviting God to join us in our agenda and God's inviting us to join him in his mission. And so we must surrender our agenda and the ways that we construct God to be the type of God that we want to journey with that's made in our image. And we must see God for who he really is and accept his invitation to join him in his agenda and his mission. And this is the journey. And this is where it begins. So reality number one, God is always at work around us and he's always inviting us to know that work and to join him and participate in that work. 
And now today, reality number two, based off of the conversation that we just experienced together from John the third chapter, maybe the the most well-known chapter in all of the Bible. And part of the reason why I wanted us to experience it in a different medium is because sometimes with familiar verses or passages, we can become inoculated to them. And we just think, oh, I've heard that before. I, I I know those things. But when we see it in a different way and we experience it and we feel the weight and the gravity of the conversation and this was real people having a real conversation about real things just like we are today. And we, we come to understand this second reality. If you're taking notes, I hope you'll write this down and continue to think about it throughout the week. Number one, God's always at work around us and he's inviting us into that work. And number two, God pursues a relationship with you. God is pursuing a relationship with you right now. He's the pursuer. Now, again, for many of us, we may have grown up in a religious background in church or we may have grown up outside of the church or we're just returning or coming to the church for the first time and trying to explore what faith means. And for many of us, we, we orient ourselves in the first two realities that we've learned in, in the exact opposite. So Remember, reality one, God's always at work. He's inviting us. But for, me, for many of us, it's I'm always at work and I'm inviting God. And the second reality that God pursues a relationship with me, but for many of us, it's I'm pursuing a relationship with God. And I'm doing that through moralism or through just trying to be a better person or six steps to a better you or trying to be more self-actualized or trying to experience more things and, and just be more spiritual and just try to do more things so that I can catch up somehow to God. And what we learn today from the realities of the story of God found in the scriptures is that God's actually been the one pursuing you all along. He's the one that made you in his image and is now coming after you and pursuing you for relationship. And the evidence of that today is all throughout the scriptures, specifically in our passage today in John chapter three. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, open it with me, follow along with me, or write the reference down and go read it for yourself this week. If you need a copy of the scriptures, by the way, we have them all around the campus, grab one, it's yours. Take it, read it. John chapter three, we see this reality in action that God is pursuing a relationship with us. And we see it in this, what I would call a crucial conversation. Some of you have read the book, Crucial Conversations, which is a really good work in the marketplace. And it defines a crucial conversation this way. I love this. A crucial conversation is a conversation where the stakes are really big, opinions are varying, and emotions run high. So the stakes are really big, number one. Opinions might vary between us and emotions run really high. Can any of you think about some of the conversations in our country right now that fit that criteria? And even as we think about spiritual conversations and things of faith, and remember the spiritual realm is the realm of value, meaning, and purpose. It's who am I? Who is God? What is my purpose? What's true value and meaning in life? And so as we think about those things, we have varying opinions about that. And the stakes couldn't be higher, could they? And emotions run really high because of those things. And for some of you, in your journey with Jesus and your journey with spirituality, if you will, just to take an even higher step into that, You've, you've had a bad experience, a hurtful experience with, quote unquote, the church or, or a religious person or somebody in your family or what have you. And so every time one of these crucial conversations comes up, you're like, I just want to get out of this. 
because it never ends well. And I think the beauty of our passage today is how Jesus reframes what is a crucial conversation where the stakes are big, opinions are varying, and emotions run really high. And he reframes that in such a beautiful way as a way actually to engage your deepest longings, your desires, the reasons why you're here today, which are varying, the opinions that you bring to the table about who is Jesus and religiosity and the emotions that come with that and the baggage that comes with that. And Jesus is sitting right in that with you. And maybe you didn't know that, this, but the the most well-known verse in all of the Bible, which is in our passage today, John 3 16. You, you may see it at the uh, football game today. John 3.16 is not in the context, as we're learning today, is not in the context of a sermon. It's not even in the context of a formal teaching. The context of the most powerful and well-known verse in all of the Bible is a conversation. It's a crucial conversation to use that definition between two rabbis. The first rabbi was a man named Nicodemus and the second rabbi was a man named Jesus. And they engage in this high stakes conversation with varying opinions and understandings and high emotions and it's a beautiful thing. And to me, this is so important to understand about faith and who is Jesus and what is Christianity as it, as it pertains to all of religion and other world religions and philosophies, that this passage, this verse that maybe you've heard of before, John three sixteen, is not in the context of, again, a sermon or a formal teaching. It's a conversation. And what does that tell you about who Jesus is and how he pursues you? It's personal. That God meets you where you are. That he comes into your family system, your struggles, your disappointments, the ways that people have hurt you with religious conversations. I spoke with someone last week that came back to church, returned to church for the first time in almost 30 years. And their word to me was, I expected to feel judged. And instead today, I felt greeted and welcomed and I've never felt more alive. Now, that's only the work of the Spirit. That's God pursuing that individual and making himself known to that individual. And that's what God does for each and every one of us. But I just want to name in the room and for those watching online that for so many of us, we get to this place of where we are in our spiritual journey and we have this bag that we're carrying with us and it gets heavier and heavier for many of us as the years go by, full of disappointing, hurtful conversations and experiences and ways that Maybe people that are followers of God let us down or we, we have a, an unhelpful conversation with them and we just are afraid to pursue that again. And I just, I just want to say that as we look at our passage in context and we think about John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, that this happened as Jesus is sitting with someone just like you and having a conversation with them. Because discipleship, to use that word, and that's a, that's a big word that means following Jesus journeying with Jesus in every area of your life, which is a lifelong pursuit for every one of us of how to follow Jesus in every way. And that journey known as discipleship, that, that path of being a disciple of the rabbi Jesus who's called us to himself. It's always handcrafted, discipleship is. It's never mass produced. 
And we see that just in this conversation that this is a handcrafted, curated conversation just for Nicodemus. And, and why is this so important? Why am I spending time on this? Because God has the same conversation in pursuit of you. And he meets you in your spiritual journey and the, and the baggage that you bring to the table. And he's willing to engage that with you and sit with you in your disappointment and your hurts and your, your hangups and your disbeliefs and your doubts and your frustrations and the things you think you know about God and the questions that you have, have about God. Jesus is sitting right there with Nicodemus and he's sitting with you because reality too, God's pursuing a relationship with you. And to get into our conversation today in John 3, again, in the context, this was a tremendous disruption, if you will, for Nicodemus. What do we know about Nicodemus in context? Nicodemus was a Pharisee, meaning he was a, an expert, to use our vernacular, an attorney in the law. He had spent years of his life, probably since the age of 13, learning about the laws of God and precisely knowing so many things about God. But look, guys, Nicodemus is sitting with Jesus in the middle of the night and having a crucial conversation because he doesn't yet know God. And he wants to. He wants to experience God in a John 17, 3 way to know God in that kind of way. And he knows all kinds of facts and data and laws about God, but he doesn't yet know God. And so he's seeking, he's desiring, and some of you are in the same place. And Jesus is engaging him in that way. And I want you to see, if you're taking notes, that John chapter three, and this reality that God pursues a relationship with us, and this crucial conversation that we see between Nicodemus and Jesus is built on one statement, and two questions, all three from Nicodemus. He makes one statement and he asks two questions that are recorded in the Gospel of John. And by the way, I think this is a pretty good construct for crucial conversations. That when we come to have those conversations, whether it's someone that is mentor for us or someone that we perceive has a relationship with Jesus or is further along in their relationship and we have that conversation, it's wonderful to come into those conversations with one statement and two questions. And maybe it's framed a little bit differently, but you get my point that I have more to listen to than I have to say. And I can share my statement or my thoughts about where I am, but I'm also coming with a curious posture to try to understand to be curious and investigative about the things that I don't understand. And Nicodemus shows up in that way. And I just wanna walk you through it. If you have your text, follow along. And if you're taking notes, I'll put the outline up here for you to write down. Nicodemus makes his first statement in John chapter three, verse two. And I'm gonna just story tell it. Nicodemus basically says to Jesus, in the context of this crucial conversation, we know that you're from God. <laughs> And think about that as a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the council of Israel, the men that sat there and helped to give political and religious oversight to Israel. Nicodemus is a part of that group. Again, this is an interruption to his plan for his life and the stature and the prestige that he had. And here comes Jesus, this other rabbi, teaching about a kingdom and teaching about sin and repenting and turning from sin and finding God in that way. This is a disruption to Nicodemus and the establishment of religiosity that he was a part of. And so he comes to Jesus in this conversation and he says, we know, we together, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, we know you're from God. They agreed that Jesus was from God. 
And he said, we know that because of the miracles that you've performed. We can't argue with miracles. And we know that you've come here to teach us. What a statement. I want you to circle that in verse 2 if you have it. Or highlight it on your phone, verse 2. And Jesus says in verse 3, in answer to that statement, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. The reality of God is what he's saying. You cannot experience God in the way that you long for unless you're born again. Now, this is perplexing for Nicodemus, and it might be perplexing for you. Because Nicodemus is only thinking about it in a physical way, in a law way. Wait a second. How in the world would that work? What Jesus is saying is this, just to be clear. You can either be born twice, physically and spiritually. That's what he says, water and spirit, and die once physically. Or you can, you can be born once and die twice physically and spiritually. We'll come back to that. I want you to think about that. Essentially what Jesus is saying is you can be born physically and then spiritually and you only die once physically, but you'll live on forever spiritually. Or you can be, you can be born once physically and never born again spiritually and you'll die both physically and spiritually. That's what he's saying. I know it's a deep water. And Nicodemus, who is the chief, right, of Pharisees and a respected teacher doesn't get it. And here's his first question, right? Statement, we know you're from God. You've done miraculous signs. You came here to teach us. Jesus says you gotta be born again to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? Which may be where you're at right now. Or with a list of other questions that you might have for God. What are you talking about? How, how can this be true? And I want you to see that Jesus doesn't end the conversation and say, how dare you ask me a question? How dare you bring a doubt to me? Don't you know who you're talking to? He doesn't do any of that. He sits with Nicodemus in that question and he absorbs it. And he simply begins to speak again about what he means and answers Nicodemus's question, which again, for us, for those of us who know Jesus and are having crucial conversations of our own with other people that are trying to know Jesus, this is such a wonderful model for us. Nicodemus says, here's what I know, what I see, what I believe. But here's all the things I don't understand and I don't know. And Jesus is able to sit with him in that. And Jesus replies to this first question in part in verse five. He says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. So he doubles down. You've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, all right, how in the world could this happen? My mom has passed away. You're telling me that I'm going to re-enter the womb and be born again of another physical birth? He still doesn't get it. And, and Jesus is patient with him and begins to teach him. And Nicodemus comes back again after he says, no, you've got to be born again. And he says, how, how could this be? Second question. One statement, two questions. Look at verse 9. How, how, how could this be? And, and this is the moment, right, in the crucial conversation where Nicodemus displays that he's curious enough to ask the question, how could this be? With what you're saying, how, how could that happen? And this is the moment that Jesus has been waiting for, to, to see that type of interest and curiosity, and from each of us as well, and to meet him in that place and begin to speak, well, here, here is how. And Jesus begins to teach him in verse nine, here's, here's how, and following. And he uses an example of Moses in the wilderness, and this is found in Numbers chapter 21, if you want to cross-reference it. 
where Moses is leading the people of God from Egypt into the promised land, from physical and spiritual slavery into the promised land, a place where they could manifest God's promises and be God's people in a physical place, which is the same journey that we're on as well. And the people are complaining to Moses and to God because they're frustrated. And God, as a consequence, allows serpents to bite many of the people and they perished. And they're crying out to God. And God tells Moses, I want you to construct a bronze serpent and I want you to place it on a pole and I want you to lift it up among the people. And as the people look upon the surface, as they turn their attention to the bronze serpent and they look to him, they'll be saved. And you go, this is crazy. Why would Jesus be having this conversation with Nicodemus in this way? Well, first of all, he meets Nicodemus where he is. Nicodemus knows this story. He's been trained in all these stories. So he takes a familiar story to Nicodemus from the Hebrew text, and he uses that to point to himself, which is all the Hebrew text points to Jesus. All the story of God, all the stories in Scripture point to one story about this God that came to you and pursues you. And so Jesus uses that story as an example, and he says, just like that, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, I'm going to have to be lifted up and placed on a pole for all the world to see. And as they look upon me and what I've done for them and believe in me, they'll be saved as well. Now, Nicodemus is really thinking at this point. And he's trying to understand what Jesus is saying. And maybe you are too. What does that mean? That Jesus is going to be placed on a pole, that he's going to be lifted up. And as people look to him, they'll be saved. How, how, how could this happen? And this, dear friends, everyone watch this is the context of the verse that maybe you've heard in your life. Maybe it was the first verse that you memorized. Maybe it's a verse that you keep coming back to over and over again when you're pressed. Here's what I know about God. There's so much I don't know about God, but here's what I know about God. And you would quote John 3.16. But you need to know this. It's in the context of a crucial conversation. And moreover, it's Jesus answering the question, how can I be born again spiritually? How can I be saved you know, in the way that Jesus is talking about here from my sin. Remember the conversation that we just watched? Jesus said, I didn't come to overthrow Rome. I came to overthrow an even bigger enemy and to defeat sin. And that's what he's speaking about. And then he begins to unpack in verses 16 and following how that happens. And if you've missed everything else, I hope you won't miss this the next couple of minutes. That Jesus begins to teach, how does God pursue us? What does it mean that God pursues us, this second reality? How can we know that? And Jesus says, here's how you can know it. Verse 16, that he sent me, that he sent Jesus, his only son into the world to pursue you. Christianity, everybody watch this. Christianity is not a set of rules, regulations, or even teachings to be understood. Christianity is a person to follow. It's the person of Jesus who came and calls us to himself to look upon him and to follow him in every area of our lives. That is the discipleship journey that God calls us to. That is what it means to practice the way of Jesus. And it begins by looking upon him and believing in him. And that's what Jesus says, that the way God pursues you is that I came. You know, 
God did all kinds of things to reveal himself to people throughout time, through his creation, through prophets, through priests, through miracles of all kinds, through all kinds of different things that happened, but God's ultimate revelation to you and to me was Jesus. And God's ultimate revelation, Jesus, is God's ultimate invitation to us to know him. But it begins by understanding that God gave his only son for us. That is the context of John 3, 16, is answering this question of Nicodemus. And maybe you have a question too. And Jesus begins to answer your question by saying, I came for you. It's not about me pursuing God, me inviting God into my story. It's about knowing that God's working and he is inviting me into his story, that he's the pursuer, that he came to me. And here's the thing, for some of you this morning, you feel like, man, I don't feel worthy at all of that. And I almost didn't come this morning because I don't feel worthy to be here. I don't feel worthy to hear this. And you need to hear this, that God pursues you. And God sees you as worthy to pursue him. God saw you so worthy that he sent his son to you. And he demonstrated that. In other words, he put it into practice. It wasn't just words, by dying on a cross for you. So Jesus continues here. Some of us know verse 16, but we don't know 17 and 18 that are equally as important. He says, the other way that God pursues you or you understand how God pursues you is that it's not through judgment. And I just wanna foot stomp this one. Because for some of you, you did grow up in a religious background or you're returning to church for a second or third or fourth time and I'm so grateful for that. <clears throat> but part of the reason why you walked away or maybe you felt pushed away is because of judgment. It's the conversation I just relayed to you of someone who was here last week that they felt like my orientation to church is negative and I, I feel judged for whatever reason that might be, whether it's reality or just their own perception. It's true for them. And the truth is that so many people in our culture are saying yes to Jesus or I'm, I'm open to Jesus, but no to his people, no to the church. And what Jesus says here is so important for us when we understand that he pursues us, that it's not through condemnation, but you need to hear this too. Jesus says, it's not condemnation or judgment that I came, it's, it's to save you. And the reason why is because you're already condemned. In other words, you already know through what God has written, through his law, through all the things that people aren't perfect and you stand condemned. So Jesus says the orientation to all this is you didn't need to hear more condemnation. You didn't need to hear more judgment. You already know you're not perfect. You already know you don't meet God's standard on your own. So I came for your biggest need, which is to save. I came as a savior, not as one to condemn or a judge. And for some of you, you need to hear that message today. And here's the third thing Jesus says to Nicodemus. How does God pursue a relationship with us? Just like he pursued Nicodemus. Well, God sent his son. God doesn't condemn us through judgment. He came to save us. But here's the third thing. It's through our belief in him. Look at verse 18. Let me just read it to you again. Jesus says, there's no judgment against anybody who believes in Jesus, in, in me. But anyone who does not believe has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son, speaking about himself. In other words, I didn't come to condemn you. Those who don't believe already stand in condemnation. I came to save. And it's through belief that that happens, not through your works, not through your religiosity. Please listen. This is the words of Jesus, not my words. This is what Jesus said. We want to know who Jesus really is. This is what he said. 
It's by believing. It's by turning your attention to Jesus and placing your trust and your belief in him and not in yourself, not in other people, not in religiosity or moralism. That's not why Jesus came. By the way, in John 3, he's talking to a religious person, Nicodemus. In John 4, if you go and read this week, he's talking to an irreligious person with a woman at the well. And he meets both of them right where they are in conversation. So whether you consider yourself to be religious and you struggle with moralism and legalism, or you consider yourself to be irreligious and you struggle with hedonism and just doing whatever you want to do, God meets both people right here in conversation and pursues both of them just like he does you. Uh, Let me finish here. So whatever happened, back to our first conversation, crucial conversation here in John 3, whatever happened to Nicodemus? I mean, at the end of John 3, if you go and read it for yourself, and I hope that you will, we don't see Nicodemus fall down on his knees and confess his sins to Jesus and believe in him and change you know, everything in his life and leave the Sanhedrin. And we, we don't see that. We see an honest, crucial conversation where the stakes are big, where opinions vary and emotions run high. And it's a wonderful, beautiful conversation. But interestingly, Nicodemus, the man Nicodemus, is only found in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus is only mentioned three times. One of them we covered today in John 3. But the other two tell us everything about what happened after this conversation and what God did in his life and what he wants to do in your life. In John 7, the group of people, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, are trying to figure out a way to arrest Jesus and condemn Jesus. And Nicodemus is emboldened by his belief in Jesus and this encounter and what he's experienced with God and who he now knows Jesus to be. And he says, wait a second, our own rules say you can't condemn somebody without a fair trial. So are you saying you're not gonna give Jesus a chance to speak to you? You're not gonna give him a chance to even defend himself, which they didn't in the end, by the way. That's not right. And he can't help but begin to verbalize that. And that's found at the end of John chapter seven. And they begin to look at Nicodemus like, wait a second, Are you defending, who are you? Are you defending this guy? Are you actually saying you believe this guy? And then curtain closes on that. We don't know what happens. But then we get to John chapter 19, the final time that we read about Nicodemus. And guys, this is so powerful. And when we connect John chapter three with John chapter 19, we see what was really going on in Nicodemus's heart and the journey of discipleship that he was on to believe in Jesus. In John chapter 19, Jesus has been crucified. He's up on a cross. And there are two men that come and take his body down and prepare his body for burial and bury him in a tomb. The first man was a man named Joseph Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph was also a member of the Sanhedrin, of the high council who had chosen to follow Jesus secretly. And he comes. But there's another man that's with him. John chapter 19 Verses 39 through 42, it's Nicodemus. Nicodemus is there with Joseph. And I just, for just a moment, I just want us to transport ourselves back to the cross. Everyone has left. It's Joseph and Nicodemus, two members of the highest court in Israel. And don't you know that Nicodemus flashed back to this crucial conversation that he had with Jesus in John 3. And specifically when Jesus said, 
just like Moses lifted up the bronze serpent and all the people who looked upon the serpent were saved, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that all people will see him and believe in him. And in that moment, as Nicodemus is looking up at the cross, Jesus on a pole, lifted up, condemned to die in our place, Nicodemus sees Jesus for who he really is. And the scripture tells us that he brings 75 pounds of anointing oils and aloe and myrrh and anoints his body. And it was Nicodemus and Joseph that wrapped Jesus in the cloths that were eventually left in the tomb on Resurrection Sunday and placed them in a tomb. Michelangelo did a sculpture of what this might have looked like. I brought it for just for you to see. <coughs> Nicodemus at the top, taking Jesus' lifeless body off the cross and holding him. <coughs> So sorry, guys. This is so powerful. This is so powerful. And this crucial conversation led to a man coming and taking care of Jesus and placing him in the tomb that eventually he would rise from and conclude and prove to Nicodemus and to all of us that he was who he said he was and that we can believe in him. Reality number two, God pursues a relationship with you. He pursues a relationship with me just like he did with Nicodemus. To him alone be the glory today. Let's pray together. I wanna pray for someone in the room today, someone watching, someone listening, that has been asking questions, making statements, trying to explore and discover who Jesus is. And today you're ready to look upon Jesus high and lifted up, a crucified savior for you and believe in him just like Nicodemus did. And if that's you today here in the room watching online, I wanna invite you to join me in a really simple prayer. It's not about getting all the words right. It's about the posture of your heart towards Jesus and who he is. Jesus, today, I see you for who you are, the savior of the world, the one who came not to judge me, but to save me. And so I believe you today, Jesus, that you are who you said you are. And I trust you. And I wanna tell you that I know I need you. And so I wanna invite you into my life and invite your spirit into my life so that I can follow you. And whatever amount of days that I have left, that they can be spent pursuing you and following you because you pursued me. For those of you that have had a moment in your life where you have looked upon Jesus and prayed and you are a Christ follower, my simple prayer for you today is that you'll remember that God pursued and pursues you, that you would never, ever, ever get over the gospel, 
the good news of Jesus that he came for you and has a reckless love for you. And out of that, you would choose to continue to follow after him and for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.